You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And today we are joined by Kimberly Archie. We are so excited to be speaking with her. Um, Some of you may remember in episode six, we spoke with Ariel and he connected us to Kimberly. And we are just excited to dive into her work. She refers to herself as a racial justice warrior. So we're going to figure out a little bit more of what that means. We're going to talk about some of the dysfunction happening in our country, some of the solutions that she proposes, and just have an all around good time. So welcome to the show, Kimberly. Thank you so much. Nice to see you both. I know. I am so excited. So you're actually our first guest that neither one of us have had any previous conversations with. And so I'm just excited to be meeting what I'm assuming is going to be a new friend and to have the conversation that's so near and dear to Aaliyah, my heart's about racial equity, racial injustice, and how do we really address it at all levels, but especially at government and at the local level. So we all have our story and our journeys as into how we got familiarized with the work or why we're passionate about this work. Why, what led you to doing this work and to being that racial justice warrior? Right, so I grew up in a family where justice was um, a a huge principle and value. And uh, I didn't realize until I got older, of course, some of the incidences that really embedded justice in our in our families. And so I now know that I come from uh, a grandfather who escaped lynching in Georgia. I know that I had a father who um, protested at the University of Washington and helped to shut down the, the university um, president's office back in the 60s and to make sure that there were more opportunities for um, black students They wanted to bring more black students on campus as well as more black faculty on campus. And I'm a direct result of of that work that my dad did um, and that sacrifice and risk that he took at that time. And then I repeated kind of the, the same thing when I was on campus at the University of Washington. I, um, protested against what was I-200 at the time, and it was about taking race out of decision-making um, for the, oh, all over the state. It ended up passing, but I was a part of a group, you know, the Black Student Union and a bunch of other Black groups on campus, and we shut down an interstate, a bridge, an interstate in Seattle. And so um, I, I now know that I come from justice-oriented people that really fought for it in their own different ways. So that's kind of how I got into the work. So I've always had that kind of perspective of wanting to look for justice. I've always wanted to support or help the underdog and create situations so that the underdog was no longer the underdog. And um, and when I got the opportunity, again, as an adult, I learned um, about racial justice and undoing institutionalized racism from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond based out of Louisiana and um, decided, yeah, this is going to be at the foundation for all of my work that I do from now on. Quick question. So I, when I was um, working for the city of Alexandria, we were beginning the racial equity work and they actually just hired their first race and social equity officer. But basically when I was laying the foundation for that work, I jacked everything from King County and um, Portland, Oregon. 
So King County has Martin Luther King's picture on. Is it actually named? Is it Martin Luther King County or is it? Was that like yes. an after? Okay. Yeah. So Seattle. So the city of Seattle actually started all of this work when we think about jurisdictions or local government. And I actually worked for the city of Seattle after um, they started this work, their race and social justice initiative. But yes, I was a resident of Martin Luther King County when it became Martin Luther King County. Okay. So it is named after Martin Luther King and the county council person that um, ushered that, that legislation through and that name change through was actually in the room with my father he was the one of the leaders of the group that held down the president's office. His name is Larry Gossett. And um, yeah, and so I, I know him personally, but yes, he helped that legislation go through. And so now it is uh, Martin Luther King County. That's amazing. Because when I saw yeah. it, I was like, wait, I had no idea. And then I was like, maybe they retrofitted. Maybe it was always King County. But then like his, his pictures on everything for the county and I just think that's super dope and exciting. So uh, So it was originally King County not named after Martin Luther King okay, County. So it it was... has to do right. So okay. we did retrofit it. But okay. it's specifically named that now. So Kimberly, I wanna dive into some of the work that you've been doing both in Seattle, Louisiana. I know you're now in North Carolina and you're working with jurisdictions all across the country. But tell us a little bit about the equity work you're doing. And I have to say, like me personally, I would love to know about how you're helping um, these different jurisdictions really apply an equity lens to their budgets. Because we all know how you allocate resources has a direct impact on you know, the outcomes, whether it be health, education, employment, all of the things that we talk about as like the things people need to thrive and you know, just live a basic life, so. Right, so as both of you know, um the inequities are across life, right? Across all areas of our lives. Just as you just named, um, the finances are connected to, or budgets for government are connected to um, housing. They're connected to education. They're connected. They're connected to everything. And the inequities that we're seeing across the country, um, and I can only speak about the U.S. because I'm a U.S. citizen. I've never been. I've never lived anywhere else other than the U.S. So a lot of what we talk about is what has happened in the United States and what continues to happen in the United States. So um, the work that I do is really about working with mainly government, local government agencies, whether that be municipalities, uh, city government, county government, as well as um, utilities, et cetera, or quasi-government entities, and really work this framework of normalizing racial equity and operationalizing it and organizing people around it and really going towards this vision. And so it's visualize is also a part of the work. So I'm gonna back up a little bit and talk about how normalizing for me is like one of the most important pieces of it. And as Adiel talked about when he was on with you that it really is about us all being on the same page and being comfortable with the uncomfortability of talking about race and racism and how it has been such a huge factor in uh, this country, even before it was a country, right? So it's based on oppression. This country is based on oppression and on racism by how we stole land from Native Americans, Native Indigenous people that were living here, as well as later on, you know, 
uh, once it was a country, we uh, stole people, African people, from their land. So this um, this place where we reside really started off as a place of uh, of oppression and injustice, and based on skin color, based on race, even though uh, race is not biologically real. So getting people to undo the education that we've all been given through our K through 12 system um, is part of the work too, right? So we teach people about John Punch and how um, he was an indentured servant and ran away with two other indentured servants who had white skin, but he was the only one that was, after they were caught, was um, uh, sentenced to uh, slavery for life versus being indentured for an additional number of years. Um, uh, we talk about how um, how chattel slavery was um, through through the mother, right, instead of through the father. And we talk about how um, laws were created to definitely benefit one group, which is usually white, um, over another group, which is usually people of, of color or based on religion or or whatever. So um, really getting people to be on the same page about what has happened in history, on the same page as far as shared language and a shared analysis of these are the events in history that have happened and this is how they um, impacted people. It benefited a, one group over it burdening or harming another group and how even though we're 400 years away, 300 years away, 200 years away from those incidences, the inequities are still in play on a daily basis in our lives. So that's one of the biggest pieces is really just getting people on the journey of normalizing, talking about it, understanding the language, the context, and then being able to analyze history from a different perspective than they have in the past. All of that matters, especially when we're talking about budgets, right? So when we wanna operationalize that, we go from, okay, so now you understand what has happened in the past. You understand this, and you have a skill that allows you to analyze and see the root causes of how we got here. So how do we undo it in our decision-making today? So looking at budgets, for instance, I worked a lot in budgets when I was in Seattle as well as now that I'm in North Carolina uh, working for a city government. And what's really important is that you have to have that understanding, that root cause, that um, ready and available as part of the process at, from the beginning. This work can't be done with equity, um, an understanding of equity or analysis of equity and the data of the injustices later on after you've already made a decision. It has to be at the forefront of the decision, at the forefront of the budget process. And the way that you do that, and again, Adiel talked about this, but the way that you do that is really looking at the data. And you have to have data that's disaggregated by race, by ethnicity, by gender, and by location or geography. These, these data tell you uh, what's going on in your communities, in your cities, in your counties, and you? But you have to be able to disag disaggregate that data to really see the stories that are going on. 
The other piece, and I think this is just as valuable, and a lot of times people don't pay attention to this as much, is the data coming straight from the people that are being harmed mm -hmm. or that are most impacted by the decisions that we make as government. And so it's important to really have a, a better connection, more than outreach, more than um, just asking what do you think, but having relationship in community that you can get the, um, uh, the understanding of the stories that back up the data, right? Yeah. So, so, um, so those are two really important pieces of of, of the budget work. And but the making data, sure the data the is so powerful in that I know when we so we started again in the city of Alexandria just as a small working group, like an interdepartmental working group, and then it expanded to where the police chief was there, the director of housing, libraries. I mean, the um, public school system was there. And so then we had this decision where we're like, okay, it's time to go to the city manager to get his buy-in. And that data and telling a story, we used 10-year um, trends and looking at the disparities over the last 10 years and to say, we've been putting so many resources into these various social issues and the gap has remained the same the whole time between white and black and brown. So we have to be intentional about how we do things differently or else that gap is always going to be there. And it's really a smart ROI for local jurisdictions. We're not saying it's a complete, you know, re remapping of the whole game. It's saying, how do we address it differently? Because we're already probably throwing some money at it. How do we get more intentional and focused to actually address some of the concerns at their root causes? Well, and I would argue that in some situations, we do need to throw out the whole game because the system itself is running on its own. There's not a lot that we're doing to feed the system to um, keep it going. It just It's just operating on its own because we're, a, we're, we're maintaining the system, right? And so the one of, sometimes the only way to, to break the system, which these systems were created, without black and brown people in mind, but the, sometimes the only way to break a system is to completely take it down, undo so it. So how do you- And put together a different system. How do you do that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. not easy. And I actually have a staff person that says that we just need to burn down the whole house, right? And my philosophy is let's build another house next door to this house and let's build a house that functions for everybody. And then we move people out of this house that doesn't function where all the injustices and inequalities have inequities are, move them over into this new house and help and show them how they operate this new house. Then once we move enough people over, which is hopefully everybody, but we know everybody's not going to move over, then we burn that house down. We don't need that house anymore. We need this new house. So the way to do it really is through policies, practices, and procedures. You have to, ed we have to educate people to understand that they have to think in a new way, they have to add, you know, instead of thinking of customer service as the, as the driver for how we do our work, it's really um, equity is the driver for how we do our work. So every decision that we need to make, every time we need to um, look at our budget, not only the amounts of our budget and what's going into which departments or into which services or programs or projects, but also how's it going to impact folks? Who's going to benefit from it? Who's going to be harmed or negatively impacted? And then 
change it up from there. So it may it's gonna it's gonna need to look like a different system if we're going to be successful at changing conditions in communities. Kimberly, can you talk to why is it so important that it has to have that intentional focus on equity? Because I feel like right now I hear a lot of people saying, well, at my job, we have a diversity and inclusion team, or we have another committee that is focused on- They do the Black um, History Month events, right? <laughs> exactly. We, we, have, we have pieces of it. So, And I think there's this like nervousness, or I won't even say nervousness, there's an intentional decision not to put equity first. And I, I just love your perspective about what are we missing by not putting equity in the equation or not even starting with equity. Right. And, and I do want to make sure that I'm clear we talk about equity and our focus is racial equity, right? So the, there's this larger global idea of equity, making sure that people understand that we all don't start from the same place, that's the system, that we all don't have the same opportunities and access, that's also the system. And so equity helps people understand that that there is a difference in our starting places and the barriers or the hurdles that we go through in life and making sure that we provide whatever is needed for a group or for a person to be able to achieve uh, success in life, whatever that looks like, right? So understanding that, um, for instance, I think I heard you all talk uh, before about uh, names, right? So my name's Kimberly, but Aaliyah, you might... Be your your name on your resume and my name on my resume looking exactly you know identical with the same education and job experience and things like that I may get a, a sec a, you know a first interview whereas you may get pushed to the side as a oh, my an initial, name is Katie I get no. every interview <laughs> right, right exactly Katie you know exactly what I'm talking about right and um and so how do we, As so that's something that our organization has looked at. How do we make sure that we don't use our bias, so we don't have our bias uh, as the lens that we're using to weed out people for positions and jobs, et cetera, and instead looking at the substance of what Aaliyah has to offer versus Kimberly instead of their just their names and maybe an address. So, um, and I'm sorry, I don't remember if I even asked, answered the question, but... <laughs> You did. In terms it of is about equity. it's about equity, but we do a, we do have a focus primarily on racial equity because race is the first and the largest um, uh, area of oppression that we in this country have have um, are experiencing. And if we can if we can solve for equity for racial equity, then we can solve anything. I guess the pushback, right? When you especially if you're dealing with local governments is, well, why not talk about gender equity? Or, you know, why not talk about um, sexual equity or sexual identity equity? And so what has been your experience and I guess kind of your tips and pointers on why, you know, we say that when you address racism, all the other isms kind of fall under that and are captured, but what are, what are your strategies and really communicating that message that identifying race is the most important to do? Right. And so um, I'm, I appreciate that that question because it does come up a lot. And I've gotten to the place where what I've learned is that I can show you better than I can tell you. Right. And so I can talk about this as much as possible. But when we look at data and when we look at um, when we um, solve for 
other of the other isms and data and race continues to come up as the primary indicator, right? Then it's not just me saying it. It's all these wonderfully educated, um, you know, resourced um, researchers that are also letting us know that solving for race is the biggest issue. Um, so it's less about talking about it and it's really showing how in the data and how others agree that that this is the primary issue that we need to work on. And some people can't be convinced, right? So right. I, I try not to spin my wheels or use a lot of energy and effort on the folks that are the farthest away from where, where we are. It's much easier to work with those that are closer in that just need a little bit of a nudge, a little more information or some skills um, to and move them along because I could waste all my time on those that <laughs> yeah. are the farthest away and the ones closest in would never really get what they need to move, to move the needle. And we don't, we don't necessarily need a hundred percent of everybody, right? We can get to a tipping point and, and see great um, successes that way. I agree. Not everybody's going to come along and not everybody's ready for this conversation, but it feels like right now we're at a moment in time where more people than ever are talking about race or are waking up to the racial inequities in our country and want to do something. I'm curious, what are your thoughts for, I guess, A, how do we capitalize on that momentum? And then B, like, what do we do to support folks in entering into those conversations and not just making this one tweet, one post, one, you know, change on your Facebook picture, but actually a sustained conversation and sustained action around racial injustice? First, I'm going to say Aaliyah's bringing the heat with like the multi-part <laughs> deep questions. Right? <laughs> Well, first, I have to take a breath, and I suggest that you two take a breath, too, because this my answer is not going to necessarily be the typical answer, right? I am a Black woman with two Black children. I have Black men in my family, Black women in my family. And when I see the what has happened in the moments that we have seen, um, it hurts my heart. It hurts my soul, right? Because that could be my kids, that could be my uncle, that could be my nephew. So that's the first thing. I just have to breathe because there's a lot of people that have been working for decades for centuries. You know, we've been working on this for centuries. This is a movement and the voices of our uh, of our ancestors are so apparent now, but this is a movement and it just kind of pisses me off that some people are just seeing it in this moment, yeah. right? This yep. moment of George Floyd, this moment of Breonna Taylor, this moment of, of Ahmaud Aubrey, this moment of Mr. Uh, what was his name uh, in the New York City Cooper, um, in this moment, right? So it pisses me off, but also I want to take advantage of this moment and add people to the movement. So I think that the first thing to do is educate yourself. Again, I'm a black woman. It's not my job to educate everybody else about what needs to happen. It's not my job to, it is my job, right? In a way, because I'm I'm the director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion <laughs> for the city. And as part of that job, I'm doing what I need to do as, as far as the education, et cetera, is concerned. But I made it very clear to like a group of supervisors um, in my jurisdiction that yes, it is part of my role, 
to educate and have this conversation about how supervisors can be allies in this moment. But as a Black woman, it is not my job to educate you on how to become a part of the movement and how to deal with the moment. So what I told them is educate yourselves first and foremost. All of you, I mean, all you have to do is Google racism and lots of information will come up. And There's we have a great um, resource page on our website, checkbox.com. Right. I mean, start, <laughs> off, start, no off, start off with some, some, you know, white fragility and some, and some, uh, so you want to talk about race with, uh, uh, what's her name? Ojima Oluyu, mm-hmm. Aloyu. Um, I, I probably butchered her name. I apologize. Uh, but start off with some some small stuff, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, and then work your way into it. Um, talk to your Black friends, not for them to educate you, but to be like, can we, how are you about talking about this? Can we talk about this? Or are you interested in talking about it? Is it more of a burden? Is it extra labor or added labor for you to talk about this? If it is, then I need to go back and read and, and answer my own questions and not have dialogue about it un, until I'm until my my black friends are ready to right. So again, not to put the burden on black people and people of color in this moment just because you woke up, but to go educate yourself and start figuring out how to do small things. So if you can start off with a tweet, great, but don't stop there, right? Don't stop with blacking out your your profile pic on, on Instagram or whatever. Actually take, if it needs, baby steps to move forward. Because again, you don't also don't want to move too fast because um, you can get caught up and think that you're yeah. doing better than you are and get messed up. So I think that that folks need to learn what whiteness is they need to learn how white supremacy culture, what it looks like, and then start to undo or change their own behaviors within those frameworks. So like, you know, there's there's some resources out there that talk about what white supremacy culture traits look like, perfectionism, either or thinking, um, and but that also it has the antidotes that go along with those things, behaviors and ways of thinking that you can take on that help to um, depress the white supremacy part of your of our of our culture and how we've been acculturated and instead take on these new traits that are much more relational and much more justice supported. I'm really glad that you're focusing at the local level. And I always tell people government and government policies is what put us in this position to begin with. And that's where the power is and that's where the real change has to happen. That's where we need to build the new house. I'm totally going to steal that moving forward and then burn down the other one after the fact. My new pet peeve in this time and during this movement is that because we're black in different organizations, we're now the race, equity and inclusion and diversity expert. And I saw a post on Twitter. I didn't make this up, but it's like we're capable of being subject matter experts in other areas outside of race and injustice. And so what are kind of some of your tips when we talk about local government and the opportunities there for career paths and to make sure that we're equitably hiring, equitably promoting, have equity within our leadership teams. What are some of your, I guess, tips or pointers that you could give to organizations or local governments to actually make that happen and see the real work? That's a really good, um, that's a really good uh, question. And I think that 
part of it is looking for people that have lived experience in certain things. So instead of saying that you have to have a degree in, in something that doesn't require a degree, right? So I wouldn't want someone that's leading, that's this like this the um, the chief uh, financial the CFO for city government to necessarily to not have a degree because I I would think that that position takes a lot of experience and knowledge and skills that you get through through going through formal education, right? But looking at how to um, better prepare people, so more professional development and opportunities to get experience as a supervisor, to get experience taking on larger projects, etc. That's one way to um, make sure that the requirements for positions don't require all, all of them to have a degree. Um, what if it's a mixture of a, a lower degree, an AA versus a, a bachelor's degree and some years of experience. What if it was no degree at all, but a certain number of years of experience? Those are some ways that our human resources departments can get other people in the door without, um, uh, without some of the barriers that we see. But I think it's also really looking at how inclusive are you as an organization. So my title has equity and inclusion in there because equity is a process and a product, but inclusion teaches you how to make sure that all the voices are a part of the conversation, a part of the discussion, and feel as though, not just feel, but that it's demonstrated that there's some power that comes along with that, that there's some shared power. It's not just Again, I give you my voice, I give you my opinion, and then it, it, it has no bearing on the final decision. So I, making sure that we're including people and that we have inclusive environments where folks from different backgrounds can get ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, as well as gender and um, ability, mobility, et cetera, can learn how to uh, work in these spaces together, but also that we see the value that people bring no matter what their background is. So there's those are some of the specific, thing, specific things that we're doing in our jurisdiction to be a more diverse organization and for diversity to stick. Because again, I don't think that unless you focus on equitable policies and practices and that you have uh, processes that are equitable, as well as you have an inclusive work environment, those two things are necessary for diversity to actually stick. And that's what seems that people value, but that's that's really not the where the value is. The value is in the equity and the inclusion. And that's what I love about the city of Portland and how they approach the work and that they brought equity experts that didn't have like transportation experience or didn't have the finance experience, so people coming in from the Casey Foundation or wherever that were just focused on equity, so they didn't get caught up in the bureaucracy and all the red tape of the actual industry. I thought that was amazing. But again, going back to the budget conversation, that's a whole separate FTE conversation that people probably aren't wanting to have. Right, and I think that you can have some successes with that and not and people not get caught up in the bureaucracy, but. I I personally think that having some understanding and knowledge of, of how city government works is important because how can you how can you really impact change in an organization if you don't understand the rules of the game? 
And so, um, and what it's responsible for, what it can do, can't do. And I'm not saying that everybody has to go get their MPA. I'm just saying that some knowledge uh, of that can help you be more strategic as a equity, as, as a person working to embed equity in, in local government. Because then you can find ways to embed equity in different departments and in different services that the city provides, right? So we have transportation. We also so we run our buses. We also have um, our public works. We run the water service. Um, when I was in Seattle, we also had we had the utilities, but we also had um, electric and we had electric and water um, parks departments. You know, all of these things are managed run and services of city government and there's budget attached to each of those departments right and so it's really important to understand how they operate so that you can either um, change how they operate or um, embed that equity in there and understand what the impacts are going to be when equity is applied. Understanding the rules of the game is such an important life lesson. I know a lot of people hate the word like politics and they hate playing the politics, but the reality is if you can't think and act politically and you don't understand how decisions are made, then it's really hard for you to find, okay, who's that right person to talk to? Who's the, the piece of the puzzle that I need to move over here? What's like the system that I actually need to be intervening in, yet I'm over here having conversations and I'm missing the real, you know, the real dialogue that's going on. And I think the more savvy you can get, whether you're in local government or you're running your own business or you're, you know, engaged in some other network, the more savvy you can get in understanding how those relationships are formed, how those networks are operating, how those decisions are made. I think the more effective you'll be not just at advancing equity work, but just really advancing the change that you hope to see, period. I think that is so true, and it and it's not always the official or the formal leaders or people with titles where all of those those things happen, right? There are people that have worked for governments for 20, 30 years, and they're actually the seat of power um, because they have the influence of the regular people, not the folks that have the titles. And then so then they're because they're able to influence informally, they then have a lot of power and influence in the formal system um, without the actual title. So it is, I think it's important because you know, why would I go play Monopoly if I'm used to playing sorry, right? And I only know the games of sorry. I'm not gonna that's the games of sorry are not the rules of sorry are not gonna help me win Monopoly. So true. Well, Kimberly, it has been such a joy speaking with you and so much fun. I think now we officially, when things open all the way back up, have to go get a real brunch um, <laughs> so we can continue this conversation. If our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, sure. The best way to get in touch with me is through my website, which is KimberlyArchie.com. And that's Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-E. A-R-C-H-I-E dot com. I'm also very much, um, I'm on LinkedIn a lot, more so than anything else. And and I, um, my LinkedIn is also my name, Kimberly Archie. So just look me up there. I'm adding you as soon as we hang up this call and I'm super Oh, excited. I can't wait to add you. <laughs> Yay! This was awesome. Thank you so much, Kimberly. 
Thank you both as well. I look forward to um, forward to hearing this, hearing more of your podcast. I think you guys are doing amazing work. And um, I'm going to refer some more names to you, people yes. that are on the ground doing the work, uh, especially in the communities where I'm working. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Okay, Aaliyah, I, I mean, equity, government, organizational equity, what's not to love about that episode? I think that's the reason why we're both looking at each other and just smiling. <laughs> we're all excited. I mean, I feel like to quote Kitty Leonard, this is my jam. And I just love that we keep having these conversations and each time going a layer deeper. I mean, this is the first time that we've talked about equity from the lens of like our city budget. And how do you really take an intentional focus on equity as we consider how we allocate resources? So I'm really excited to dive into that further. I'm curious, what were some of your takeaways? No, I mean, that was it. And not to be repetitive or to say the same things that we always say. I really felt like what we needed or what tools we needed to give people with this episode is the how to for city budgets, because I was trying to research, like, are there infographics? I mean, Fairfax County has a video. City of Alexandria has stuff on the website. But the the jurisdictions that do the best job in how to engage people in the city budget process are jurisdictions in California. So like the city of Chula Vista had a really awesome report and just their reporting mechanisms I thought were really great. So I definitely want to expand on that a little further. I feel like there's so many layers to this conversation. So for me, the first thing I took away was like, okay, if we want people to engage with the budget at all, like what as a city or what are the folks who are trying to facilitate that engagement, what do they need to do? And this is a very new takeaway because I just heard it today. <laughs> I was on a call um, with Sarah A and she is the co-founder of Greater Good Studio in Chicago. And one of the things that they have been thinking about is this model of 1%, 9%, 90%. So 1% of people, when you're looking at an issue, are usually those who are committed. They're the folks who are going to show up at your boards and commissions. They're probably like have alerts telling them when the budget process begins. They are like drinking the Kool-Aid and ready to engage. Then you have 9% of people who they're interested in the issue. They might come to a meeting, especially if there's a budget item that, you know, directly infects affects maybe where they live. But at the end of the day, they're not trying to go to several meetings. They're not watching council hearings on online. And then you have 90% of people who are impacted. These are the people who they feel these budget implications every single day, but they're not coming to a meeting. And it's not necessarily because they don't want to, but there are other things that may preclude them from coming. Maybe work, kids, a life, you know, many things that get affected you know, how they go throughout their day and the time that they have to dedicate to these processes. And so I think as we think about wanting folks to be engaged in the budget process so that we can have a budget that meets their needs, we have to realize that not everybody falls into the committed bucket. And so the outreach strategies that our cities have to use 
you know, I may not be the one to watch the video, Katie, but you might be, you know, somebody else might be the one to send the text message to that, like, they can send a note in about their top budget priority. Or I might be the person you catch outside of Harris Teeter, but I'm not the one who's going to come and do, you know, an interactive focus group on the budget. And so really thinking about where do folks fall in terms of their level of interest, but also their ability to engage. And then how do we design and tailor strategies to that and meeting people where they are so that we can get that rich data and rich stories um, that we need to really inform our decisions about where resources go. Absolutely. And I think we've talked about this before in a very early episode where we were like, hey, you know, COVID has highlighted ways that we can do things differently, but it's also highlighted the disparities that we see around community engagement. Here the ask is, for local, state, and even the federal government, that we must do things differently. We must put resources behind meaningful outreach and engagement. We must have meaningful outreach and engagement metrics. It cannot just be check-in-the-box metrics. It cannot just be check-in-the-box mentality. It cannot just be a check-in-the-box action step. And so that is first and foremost let's bring this idea of innovation to our local governments or to our government process and do things differently. We had an awesome opportunity when I was still working for the city of Alexandria, where we did a day long workshop for design thinking. And at the end of the day, and this was just like iterative cycles, right? Where you're just like asking a question, you just go deeper. Well, why, 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 how do we, how do we, how do we? And at the end of the day, everybody was like, we need our own office of innovation within city government to be, it's their job to be asking these questions and going deep on all of these issues. And it was pretty much most of the groups came to that conclusion, like our innovative idea is to have an office of innovation within city government, right? But now that these issues have been illuminated, it's just important that we actually put, like put up or shut up. I mean, that's just my, my ask for that. The other ask is for city governments to actually have a way that people can one understand the budget process and the budget where does the money come from where does it go and to help them better get engaged throughout this process so we look at city government budgets and like any other budget they operate within a fiscal year the fiscal year is usually july 1st through june 30th of every year and that city process starts in the fall or the city budgeting process starts in the fall right? So like you have to be engaged almost from November through the spring of next year to actually say, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what metrics are aligning with where this money is going? What are the impacts? What are the impacts on our strategic goals? Who benefits? Who's burdened? That's what we brought up in this episode. Ariel talked about it. Bernadette talked about it. (laughs) Shout out ONG racial equity. But like, we have to show people what it looks like and we have to communicate what it is. Like if people don't know what it is and they don't understand the process, how do you expect people to get involved? I think that transparency is key and it's not just about the process, but it's also where the decisions are that are still able to be changed and shaped. Because I think sometimes we say, oh, we just want feedback on everything. Let's everybody come to the table. And folks come genuinely hoping to shape the process. And there are some decisions that have already been made. So for example, there are some things in our budgets that we have allocated in past budgets that we have you know, a carryover or payment, for example, our debt service 
that we have to continue to pay on. And so understanding that that might not be a negotiable piece, but there might be other parts that are open for discussion and ways that the community can really shape. And so I think it's really important to be transparent about, you know, where your voice has power instead of, you know, leaving people to feel like, okay, well, I came, I showed up and I tried to influence this thing. And you know what? They still made the same decisions that it seemed like they were going to make anyway. For our listeners, I think the best way to get engaged, even if you heard an issue on Checkbox Outreach and you're like, oh, I'm really now passionate about that, or I've always been passionate about that. The best way you can get involved is to find out which department within your city or your county government handles that particular issue and get on that department's email list, get on their Facebook page, their Twitter, whatever it might be, because the most change that you can have is by aligning or by actually having real conversations with the person who's setting that policy or the person who's doing the work of that policy. So get engaged at the department level And again, understand the actual budget process. So with the fiscal year in November, the the heads up is given, right? Or in the fall, I'm looking at Fairfax County right now. But in the fall, it's like, hey, this is what our forecast is, right? Like this is what we're planning. Then in the beginning of, or around February, the county executive presents their budget plan. So then you have some time, you have a month, right? And then in the city of Alexandria, they go till April, but then they begin their public hearings. And that's the time for you to come in, you make your public comments, you can email, hopefully you can get engaged in a new way moving forward this next spring. Then based on all the comments, they actually adopt the final budget. And there are different complexities or different things that happen in that in-between stage. So for example, I know the city of Alexandria does their add delete session. There are parameters around what can be added, what can be deleted at that time. And then it's finalized. And then it's go time for July 1st. It's a yearly plan. It's a yearly cycle. And we have to know where to get engaged and how to get engaged and with whom to engage. I would just say that, so two other points. One, if you have an opinion, if there's something you are passionate about or just interested in, don't wait until you're an expert. I think sometimes we feel like, okay, well, I care about housing, so let me go check out 15 books on housing before I'm able to engage in the budget process. I think this is the moment where you start having conversations and I think reaching out to those, like Katie said, whether they're in the department or they're in advocacy groups who might be working on a plan for how to advocate for a better budget or even your own representatives and talking to them about what you want to see in your community because I think that's important data as well. The other thing as I was reflecting on this conversation is that if you still are unsure what to ask or what you should be thinking about, I think every one of the episodes we've done to this point actually gives you little nuggets for that. So I think Ariel challenges us to think about like what are the values we're trying to see in our budget and how does equity show up or how is it not showing up and what would it look like to have an equitable budget? I think John Cano really challenges us around language. So if we're putting out these statements and we're doing what Katie said about making a more transparent process, who can actually understand that process? And so how do we ensure that those videos, those resources come in multiple languages or are pushed out through different community groups who are interacting directly with those who will be most impacted? 
I think we heard from Bernadette, as Katie mentioned, the question of who's burdened and who's most impacted. I think we've heard from, you know, Evelyn, the question of who's missing from the table. So if you're getting this great information, who else can you share it with? And I could go on, but there's 23 episodes and we're trying to keep this short. But I think I'm like really impressed with you right now. Did you have that written down? No. What? Aaliyah, you are my hero today. (laughs) I'm oh, so well, impressed. Thank you. I felt bad because I was like, oh, she just said Bernadette, but that was like the person who's on my mind. All you know, right. I, no I see you, girl. I see you. <laughs> I may or may not re-listen to us. <laughs> hey, I'm not mad. But no, yeah. it's it's true. And the other thing is that I challenge people that if you do know the issues or if you do know this, your local government budget process or any process for that matter, educate somebody else, post it on your social media, um, share that information and let people know that we are public. When we talk about public hearings, I mean, it's everybody because a lot of times people don't know that they were invited. Nope. You're right. And lastly, this is my last takeaway. And this is for everyone. Just, we've talked about this before, but vote. I mean, if you want to see a different budget and you want to see different outcomes, it also matters who we have making those decisions in office. Absolutely. Done and done. Done. Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on our website as well as iTunes and Spotify. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.